All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're actually in a new chapter, finally, in the Sermon on the Mount series. Matthew chapter 6, if you're able to, I ask you to stand. In the honor of the reading of God's Word, we do this because we believe this is Holy Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Here now is the Word of the Lord. And I'm reading from classic translation. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly." Thank you. Please be seated. So that was the classic translation. So we were going to put it in plain language. They used to call that the vernacular. In the vernacular, it would say this. Jesus is saying, don't draw public attention to your giving. Don't have the wrong motivation in your generosity. Don't do your good deeds in such a public way that you seek to be admired by others. For you will not be rewarded by your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, announcing it with great fanfare in public places in order to call attention to your acts of charity and love. Those who do this have already received all the reward they're going to get. But when you give, be discreet. Give your gifts in private, and your heavenly Father, who sees everything that you do in private, will openly reward you. That would be kind of a plain language paraphrasing. We're now in week 10 of this series of messages from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today we begin chapter 6. Technically, we started this series back in August and September when we covered the beginning of chapter 5, those verses known as the Beatitudes. Then since the beginning of January, we've covered Jesus' teaching on matters such as being salt and light in our community, the teaching Jesus came to fulfill the law, not replace it. And then we entered those six antithesis passages in which Jesus reestablishes what God's intention was on issues of why the law originally was given and what it meant regarding topics like murder and lust and divorce and the taking of oaths, what is justice, and loving our enemies. Now, next Sunday, we're going to take a four-week break from this series to focus on the cross and our celebration of the empty tomb. But then we'll return and we'll complete the Sermon on the Mount series. But this morning... We begin Matthew 6, and it is here that Jesus addresses issues such as giving to the needy and instructions on how to pray, the value of fasting, the importance of storing up our treasures in heaven, and Jesus' teaching to not worry about the future. And when we look at that list, we need to hear what the Lord said to his disciples and to that larger crowd that was gathering, the, the multitudes is what the Bible calls it, is they gathered on that 500-foot hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee some 2,000 years ago. So let's begin by being sure that we understand some of the terminology that Jesus uses and the reality that our motivation is what matters. In Matthew 6, verse 2, Jesus is speaking about those who do their good deeds for appearances only, not out of compassion. Their actions are good. Their motivations are wrong. As believers, we should help others just for the joy of doing so, and we give as a response to God's love for us, hence his 
figure of speech in verse 3 about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And so for this reason, we do our good deeds quietly in secret without thought of reward. This way, only God and maybe the receiving person is aware of what we've done. And one basis for this is Jesus healed the leper. It's covered in Matthew 8, Mark 1, and Luke 5. He told him, don't tell anybody else how you were healed. Any acts of kindness and generosity should not be self-centered. They should be God-centered. Done not to make us look good, but to honor God and done for his glory. And by the way, a good rule of thumb to follow in terms of wrestling with your own needs is anytime we make church about us and what we want, we've already taken a step down the wrong road. Church is always about Christ and what he's trying to teach us through his word. So let's take a look at an outline of the first uh, four verses here. Verse 1 introduces really the theme of the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus focuses on what really is true biblical righteousness. It's a strong contrast between the earthly and the heavenly description of this matter. And it's, at least to me, this is what I see in it, Jesus speaks of what's almost an inverse relationship when he describes how the more that we have an earthly motivation in our acts of kindness, the fewer our rewards are in heaven. He's, he's saying it's not pleasing to God when we do things to get attention, but it is pleasing to him when we do them simply because the Holy Spirit calls us to do so, and we answer that call with obedience and love and a, a sense of joy. But I draw our attention to the second part of verse 1, the phrase, for you will lose your reward from your Father in heaven. It's a way of drawing a contrast. Jesus is saying God the Father sees the intention of the heart. He's not interested in the admiration it might bring us from other people. And by the way, this is not a new teaching. The Old Testament is loaded with it, but I would point you to 1 Samuel 16, 7. A fairly well-known passage where it says, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Man looketh on the outward appearance, and the Lord looketh on the heart. So the contrast is between the, the earthly reward in verse 2 and the heavenly reward in verse 4, between the, the temporary and the eternal. Now, verse 2 has an interesting wording in the classic translations, which is one reason why I am quoting from the King James Version today. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms. Well, the old English term almsgiving referred to the taking care of the poor in the English. And the, the, well, the English too. The poor and the needy. And it's written in what's called the future tense. When thou doest. It emphasizes an ongoing nature to it. I might add that this was given significant attention in the Old Testament. They would set aside one-tenth of all their produce that were given to the Levites, they were the priests, and to the poor. Deuteronomy 14, Exodus 23, Leviticus 23 all speak to this practice. But I have something of a historical item for your consideration in the intertestamental period, that's the time between the last book of the Old Testament and the... We need to go back. There we are, thank you. To the intertestamental period. The time between the last writings of the Old Testament and the first writings of the New Testament was about 400 years. During that time, righteousness and the giving of, of gifts 
almsgiving, as it was called, were almost synonymous. The giving of money was an important part of temple worship. But we also need to understand that those synagogues, those assemblies, sometimes they were called, had another role in first century life. They were also social agencies. They provided relief for the poor and the widows who depended on those contributions. And therefore, public acknowledgement became connected with giving. It was an easy way to be seen as especially righteous and generous. It unfortunately was a textbook example of man's ability to turn something good into something distorted, misused, even when the intentions were good. Now, verse 2 has a reference that says, don't announce it with trumpets. The reference to trumpets means don't draw attention to what you've done. It it used to be thought that trumpets were blown in the synagogue anytime large sums of money were given, but there really isn't a whole lot of evidence for this. The only real evidence is that we know large donors were given some kind of public recognition. But some Bible scholars thought that this reference to trumpets was regarding the trumpet-shaped receptacles in the temple that they used for the giving of gifts. But even this is uncertain, unless Jesus is making a word play on those particular trumpet-shaped containers. But perhaps it more generally refers to the blowing of trumpets at the beginning of festivals, and the giving of money as part of those events. These explanations are all possible, but I would just take the trumpet as a metaphor for drawing attention to the act of giving. And with that, let me just, for just a moment, put on my longtime music director hat. Because it was 53 years ago this month that I was handed my first clarinet in the beginning band program at Anchor Bay Elementary School in New Baltimore, Michigan. And so that's 53 years of involvement with school bands, and I noticed something about people who played trumpet and were particularly successful at it. They tended to be outgoing, somewhat aggressive, They always seemed to think their part was the melody, even when they had eight measures rest. (laughs) In other words, they tended to draw attention to themselves. I can't say this was always a factor, especially back then, but it connected with me. Maybe it's just a personality trait. So all you trumpet players, Jesus says, chill out. But why should we not give attention to our giving? Verse 2 tells us, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. So let's take a look at the term hypocrite. A hypocrite was an actor in a Greek play. That's where the term comes from. They wore a mask, which meant they were pretending to be something that they were not. By the way, here's an interesting observation. Those hypocrites in those Greek plays, they were always men. They were never women. So the term came to be used for a man who presents a false image of himself. He is a hypocrite. Two other terms, synagogue and street, here in verse 2, is used because those are the two main places where money was given. To the people, the gift was very public. It seemed very sincere and generous. But really, the givers were just drawing attention to themselves. The classic translation Verse 2 ends by saying, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Jesus declares that when others know what you're doing, the praise of people is all the reward you're ever going to get. 
And even the Greek term that's translated as reward, the Greek term misthos, is a fairly strong term. It actually comes from an economic concept. Misthos meant that you receive full payment for doing something, and it even implies that you get a receipt for it. The present tense of the verb tells us right now they're receiving all that they're ever going to get. It's quite specific. So given the context, Jesus is making the very strong suggestion that these people were not giving. They were buying. They wanted the praise of men, and in God's eyes, they had paid for it. The transaction was complete. Nothing more was due. So in verse 3, Jesus addresses this because, you see, they had deceived themselves. They had deceived themselves. Verse 3 says, When thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. It's a grammatical technique. In Greek grammar, it's referred to as a genitive absolute. The use of the left hand, right hand contrast is a descriptor of total privacy, disregarding oneself entirely in the act of helping the poor. And why? Verse 4, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now the verse provides the motive for these methods. The theme of reward is emphasized in Matthew more than any of the other New Testament writings. We should give both because we love God and we want to give back a portion of what he's given to us. And of course, we should give because we care about the plight of the truly needy. There's two reasons for this. First, God is reminding us he sees, which means he's watching at all time. The Greek term blepo, present tense Greek verb that he is all-seeing. But secondly, he rewards us for sacrificial giving. And you notice the term in secret is used twice in the phrase there. It's, It's emphasized. God sees what we do in secret, and he rewards us in his timing. So it comes back to what does this mean for us today? Well, the passages this morning speak about giving to the needy, but there are some implications in terms of our giving to the church as well. Many churches emphasize tithing, even though it is originally an Old Testament concept, it's been carried over to the New Testament. The accepted biblical teaching is that 10% is where we start. It's not a target, it's a baseline. Now that being said, I know not everybody shares that view. I think it's a matter between us and God, and that's one reason why deliberately I do not have access, nor do I ever see the giving records of the church. I'm speaking on principle right now, not to any individual. We give to remind ourselves everything we have is from the Lord. We give in order to return to his service some of the blessings that he has given to us. Here's the thing is that the statistics are not all that encouraging when it comes to giving in the American church. Whether to the poor or to their own churches, a recent study found Bible-believing Christians gave 2.8% of their income. That was a decade ago. The most recent data suggests it's now closer to 2.4%. In fact, one specific church in the study looked, their treasurer looked at their records and said almost all of that church's giving came from 10% of their members. But giving, whether to the church or to the needy, 
Jesus is saying this is an act of worship, obedience, and compassion. It's not a statement of worth or influence. So please hear this. Please hear this. Our giving, whether to the poor or to the church, does not earn our place in eternity. That's by the grace of God through the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I suggest to you that Jesus' statement here is consistent with his methods throughout the rest of chapter 5. He's describing the attitudes and even the lifestyle of a true born-again, saved-by-grace believer. We give generously, privately, and without desire for attention. Why? Because that's what Christians do who are true believers in Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment here and let's look in the mirror. What do we see when we look in the mirror? Each of us as individuals, how are we doing in this area? There's a famous passage from Mark chapter 12, verse 41 to 44. I'll read it to you. It says, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow who has given, is, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. They gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, as poor as she is, has given everything that she had to live on. Her amount was very small, but Jesus said it was greater than the value of those who are wealthy. The point is that the heart matters more in this instance than the dollar figure. On this matter, we should never fall into one of two traps of legalism. One, don't fall into the trap of measuring other people's spiritual maturity by their level of giving. That's between them and God. Two, don't fall into the trap of believing that God loves people more if they give more. We do not buy God's favor. When God extends his blessings to us, it is by his choice. He is the giver of all things. The idea is everything we have is his. Instead, we're to reflect his love. Why? Because he first loved us. He loved us before the world even began. And this is something of a mystery. We must come to him in faith willingly. And yet, and yet it is his Holy Spirit that must call us and even enable us to answer that call to come to faith. People can debate over the process of how we come to faith, but what's really important is that we come to faith. And so here's the key question this morning for all of us. And it's a two-part question, okay? Key question. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you believe he is who he says he is, the very Son of God who came to the earth to take on human form, to pay the price that you and I could never pay? That's the first question. If your answer to that question is yes, ask yourself, are you living and by implication, giving in a way that reflects that reality as a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ. That's really what the passage is all about, because that's consistent with the previous sections of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't give in order to be seen, and we don't give to receive some kind of reward. We give to those in need, and we give to the church, and we give of our time and our attention and our love because of what God has given to us. What's he given to us? His only begotten Son. He's given us forgiveness, restoration, and the promise of eternity in his presence when we truly acknowledge him as our Savior because we are sinners 
who need God's grace. And he has given us his grace freely and fully. So I hope this helps us to cut through all the political and the worldly aspects of this matter because it's a teaching, four little verses, but remember the source is from the Son of God himself. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord, this is one of those topics that can be difficult, can be controversial, but it's really fairly simple. Help us to see it that way, Lord. You have blessed us in so many ways. In our lives, we can look back at where we were when we were young and see where we are now. And we can see all the blessings and all the times that you've been with us during moments that things might have literally fallen off the cliff, but you were with us. And to young people, Lord, as they look ahead to the long stretch of their life ahead, may they have the faith and the trust and the confidence that you will be with them in all those days ahead and that you'll draw them close to you and guide them throughout their walk. Lord, as we seek to live as saved by grace, born-again believers. May we exhibit the characteristics of that, not to earn something because it's already been done for us, but because we've been saved by your grace. May your light shine in us in all that we do, including in our giving and our generosity. And may it be to your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.